the Bellerverse. The SCP Foundation generally has a good handle on preventing life as we know it from ending due to anomalous activity. Sure, they make some mistakes here and there, sometimes pretty big ones that require a little reset, but overall they keep on keeping on. But what if they didn't? What if life as we know it came to a crashing end, and with no reset button in effect, the remnants of humanity rebuilt things themselves, and life went on? That's the situation in the Bellerverse canon, set many many years after the end of modern civilization, with the SCP Foundation being nothing more than a legend and anomalies left to freely exist. We're not going to cover everything in the Bellerverse in this video, but we'll give it a decent look. So first things first then, what exactly caused the end of modern civilization? Well, it's not exactly stated, and it really doesn't matter either. All we're told is that every single person on Earth died, but humanity managed to continue on thanks to them not being present on Earth at the time of the disaster. A few thousand researchers, agents, and D-class were spared, and emerged back onto an Earth devoid of human life. The Foundation was now in charge of these remnants, and there was a lot of work to do. They had the D-Class begin rebuilding things, while various strike teams set out to begin clearing out any loose anomalies in the surrounding area. They were based out of Site-23 in Australia, until SCP-682 showed up. They managed to recontain it, to a degree, by using SCP-184, the architect, to get it lost in endless tunnels, but they had to lose an agent as bait. Other researchers went rogue and left on their own, but even those who stayed with the Foundation began to change. They began to use anomalies as part of their jobs much more readily, as what was the point of protecting society when society was already destroyed. This led to infighting and splinter groups, until eventually the Foundation really no longer existed. Instead, there were warring tribes, as more and more of the knowledge of the past was lost. Thousands of years passed by, with these events and people passing into legend, and various researchers and agents looked upon as gods in a new religion. Moving on to various aspects of this new world, starting with the geography. All of the Bellerverse takes place in and around what once was Australia, as humanity has not managed to move on from there yet, and the rest of the world is likely in very rough shape due to anomalies running wild for thousands of years. Most of the continent is much greener than it is now, with the climate having changed greatly. There are plains, forests, and even rainforests where there was once only desert. Civilization varies greatly from one place to another, ranging from tribes hardly in the Bronze Age to people living in cities to the east, firmly in the Iron Age. The city people war, trade, make alliances, and are willing to raid old ruins for treasure, although this is still considered a very dangerous concept. They've rediscovered the principles of agriculture and started to expand, but there's still a great deal of empty land in the east. The tribesmen live throughout the rest of the continent, with some tribes being nomadic while others have permanent settlements. They tend to avoid old ruins and places where strange things live, but they're also much more likely to encounter such things. There are also people inhabiting the islands around Australia, the first ones to try and branch out from the safety of the main continent. No one, however, from city people to tribesmen, will go to the south of the continent willingly. This is the home of the Everman, and is patrolled by the Walking Dead, the New Men, and other monsters he's collected over the years. Continuing on, The senior staff members that survived the apocalypse went on to become thought of as gods by the people of the New World. Some of them did everything they could to secure this legacy, 
while others just did their jobs. But either way, they become part of a new pantheon. Dr. Gears eventually became known as Geyer, the god of smithing and technology, chief among the gods. Dr. Clef became Kalef, god of the underworld, who judges the righteous when they die. And Dr. Bright became Ubert, the god of death, who judges the wicked when they die. The agent, who died as bait for SCP-682, became known as Starel, the first king. According to legend, he fought the dragon Sikate in the home Saitu, and both were sealed to protect the world. There are also numerous local gods, some of which replace gods from the Pantheon, and some which simply supplement it. Each tribe and each city has their own local version of the Pantheon, and their own version of events. Of course, as mentioned, there are plenty of anomalies still about, known as wonders and monsters. Wonders are relatively rare, but most city-states have a few that are locked up by the powerful and wealthy. They can also still be found in ruins, or in abandoned situs, or sites. SCP objects obviously vary greatly in how safe they are to possess or be around, and how potentially useful they might be to an individual or group. Monsters, on the other hand, are exactly that, anomalous creatures dwelling in the new world. The people living in this new world are not nearly as capable of combating or containing such things as the Foundation was, but life continues to go on. The rest of the Bellerverse then consists entirely of various tales, of which there are currently 21. It would be a disservice for me to only briefly summarize most of these tales, so instead let's just look at a few in greater detail. The first is titled The List of Wonders, and it concerns the namesake of the Bellerverse, a man known only as the Beller. Since this is not only the first tale in the canon, but is also a very good one, I'm going to read it out verbatim. The Beller walked through the waste, leaving no tracks. He was a tall, lanky man with black hair and beady eyes. He wore a blue jacket over a red skirt of patches and rags, with a small, tongueless bell at his throat and a ring with the sign of York, the patron saint of thieves and rogues. Beller wasn't his real name, of course, but he made it a habit never to tell anyone his real name. He said it was because his people were afraid to give out their real names. Most people assumed he was wanted under the name he was born with. He was certainly wanted enough under his new one, and unwanted in some places. He knew the ways, though. If anyone could get you from one city to another, it was him. Extra, if he'd been outcast by the locals. If you wanted a relic from the old places, he knew where you could buy it. Or, if the price was right, he'd fetch you one himself. The water skin at his side was empty. Water was plentiful in the waste, and it was one less thing to weigh him down. The real problem was food. Nothing grew in the waste. There were occasional birds and animals crossing the damp sands, but no trees or grasses of any sort. The Beller knew the waste well. He'd used its trackless spaces to escape pursuit many times. Today, however, he was looking for someone else. In the distance... A rocky promontory poked up over the dunes like the back of a beetle. He'd spotted it the day before, and he would reach it in a few more hours. Ho, oh, Beller! A voice called out. The Beller tensed, reaching for his sword. He relaxed after he spotted a man atop a dune, wearing thick leather robes. Benenum, I've come to visit you. The man began walking down the dune to the beller. He smiled, his blue eyes almost seeming to shine from under the leather skullcap worn low over his forehead. 
I thought as much. I spotted you yesterday. What brings you here? I found some writings, and I want you to tell me what they mean, the beller said. He held up the box with the handle he'd found. He'd found it across the world after he tried to rob a wizard's home and fell victim to an enchanted pool. A briefcase full of secrets. I'm surprised it's intact. Well, follow me. I've built up a small camp, and we can speak more there. This was how it always went with Benedum. He always met Beller within a day of the rocks, the campsite set up. The Beller had never been to the rocks themselves, and he didn't know anyone who had. Benedum looked to be in his middle years, but he'd been in the waste as long as the Beller had heard. Some said he was as old as the waste itself. He certainly knew enough of the lost days. The hermit led him up the dune into a small tent, made from leather and with the bones of some great beast for supports. There was a small metal contraption with fire rising from it. So, let's look at your case, the hermit said, reaching for the case with his leather gloves. He opened the clasp with hardly a glance, though it had taken the beller several minutes to figure out. He pulled out the papers, yellow and brittle, and began to read them over. He sucked in his breath and asked, Where did you find this? In a fortress built into a mountain far across the sea. One of the fortresses of the old order. He could hardly keep the excitement from his voice. There were other relics there, but this was the only thing I could carry easily. How did you get across the sea? Never mind. Do you realize what you have? Secrets, the beller said, smiling. The hermit's reaction told him the papers were important. You could say that, Benedum said, slowly nodding. This is a list of... of wonders, I suppose you could say, and the locations of the Saitus. Including the home, Saitu? The Beller asked hungrily. Benedum straightened suddenly. Beller, no. You don't know what's in there. It was abandoned for a reason. I'm not afraid. I've been in Saitu's before. The Beller puffed up his narrow chest. Not like this one. I won't let you do it. Don't try to stop me, old man. Just tell me where the Saitu is. The beller grabbed the hermit's wrist. It felt hard and thin under the sleeve, as though there were nothing there but bone. Benedum did not move, and his expression never changed, but something changed in him, as though he had suddenly grown larger. The hairs on the back of the beller's neck rose. There was a sense of power in the air, as though lightning were about to strike. "'Will you strike me?' the hermit asked. The beller took his hand from Benedum, and he looked away, embarrassed despite himself. Now, I'm going to put an end to this nonsense. He put the papers over the fire, and they caught at once. You should thank me. I've saved you from yourself, you know. Resentment boiled up inside of the beller. He hated being made a fool of, and he couldn't resist leaving one last gloating note. You haven't changed anything. What do you mean? Benedum asked, suspicious. Do you think I would make this journey with only the original set of papers? As fragile as they were? I've had time to make a dozen sets, and I've hidden them all. In truth... He'd only taken the time to make one copy, and it was in his bag, but Benedum didn't know that. Beller, you can't do this. I won't let you. Benedum rose, and for a moment, the Beller thought he might attack. You won't stop me, the Beller said with a bravado he didn't feel. You're no murderer. Benedum stared at him for a long moment, and then to the Beller's surprise... He burst out laughing. <laughs> oh, Beller. If you only knew. No. I won't kill you, 
but not for the reasons you think. Go on, then. I cannot stop you. But I don't know how you expect to follow the notes when you cannot read them. I'll find another who knows the old language. There's no one else. I'm the only one who still remembers it. Not true. There's one other. And he's not hard to find. Who? Oh. No, Beller. You don't mean to go south, do you? Benham's eyes turned to pity. If you will not help me, then I have no choice. I'd go to Abbott himself if he offered me the home Saitu. Benedum only shook his head. It's not death you should be afraid of in the Everman's hands. Beller kept his fire small and watched the entrance to the cave. He was a week out of the waste, and there was something moving outside. It was too big to be a wild dog and didn't move quite right to be a jumper. It could be another traveler, of course, or a bandit, but he hadn't seen anyone for two days. The South was a cursed land. Everyone knew that. Twigs cracked in the entrance, and a human shape blocked the light. White, blank eyes stared at him, and a low moan spilled out of a slack-jawed mouth. Gyre's Forge, he swore, and raised his sword. The walking dead were only a nuisance in the open, where their slow speed and clumsy movements made them easy to kill. In the cramped confines of the cave, however, he was at serious risk of a bite. It stumbled towards him, inadvertently stepping into the fire. It didn't seem to react as the flame climbed up its leg. It only stepped onward, reaching for him with gray, bloated fingers. The beller swung his sword at the hands, taking off the fingers. He tried to step around the dead man and get to the entrance, but it stumbled over and grabbed at his shoulder with its unmaimed hand. He kicked out, trying to keep from catching fire himself, and knocked its leg out from under it. The dead man fell, nearly pulling him down with it. He managed to get free before it could sink its teeth into his leg. He jumped back, and it began to crawl towards him. He jogged out of the cave. The beller congratulated himself on another daring escape. Now he merely had to wait until the dead man came out and it would be easily dispatched. As he turned, his smile slowly sank. The crawling dead was hoisting itself through the dead leaves that had built up around the cave's entrance, and they began to ignite. Beller looked at the dry chaparral around him and then back to the cave, where all of his supplies were. Caleb's balls! He cried in dismay, and then took off his jacket, trying to use it to beat out the flames. The dead man continued to try to bite him, even as he tried to extinguish it and the bush around it. His jacket caught, and he was forced to drop it. The fire spread quickly, and the beller realized there was no way he could beat this fire. It was time to retreat. He jumped over the dead man and ran back into the cave. The smoke was thick and choking. He grabbed his pack and then turned and ran again, coughing as he went. He jumped over the zombie's last pitiable swipe at his feet and ran, looking for a stream, a river, anything. As he did, he felt an odd warmth at his back. He looked over his shoulder and saw smoke rising from his pack. Madly, he swung the pack off and then rifled through its contents, grabbing the papers before they could be harmed, and then threw the pack away with a curse. He started off again, stumbling in the darkness away from the orange glow that was rising behind him. The beller waded through waist-deep water, his precious bundle held high over his head. He'd been wandering in this godforsaken swamp for days now, he hadn't seen so many leeches since the jungles in the Northlands. In the distance, he heard the roar of a bull crocodile. He shivered. He hadn't seen too many of the great reptiles since he'd entered the swamp, but he knew how powerful their jaws were. He finally made it up onto the next island. 
He'd been staying on land as much as possible, trying to avoid the water where he could. He wished he'd had his axe and his rope. He could have put together a boat. It would have made this trip much more pleasant. After drying off his sword and knife, he took his boots off so they'd have a chance to dry at least a little, and began checking himself for leeches. He pulled off the four that had taken hold, cursing them as he cut them up with his knife. He placed the papers on top of a reasonably dry tree stump, with a rock over them to protect them from being blown away. He didn't want to chance them getting soaked and ruined now. He checked his water skin. There was still a little fresh water in it. He considered drinking it, but decided to wait a little longer. He didn't know when he'd find another spring. No food, no fire, and running out of water. He hoped he'd find the Everman soon, or he'd have to start eating the Abert damned leeches. Worthless, bloody place, he said. Bloody, someone said behind him in a strangely familiar voice. He turned and didn't see anyone. Place bloody, someone else said. The beller realized the voice was his own. Am I going mad? He wondered to himself. Worthless bloody, another voice said, and this time he spotted movement. A large red crab sidled out from behind a bush. It was perhaps as tall as his knee, and had long, thin arms that seemed to end in spikes rather than claws. He pulled out his sword and tapped the ground, hoping to scare the creature away. It didn't look dangerous, but he didn't like the way its beady eyes were staring at him. As he stepped forward, he felt a small pain in his leg. He spun around in time to see another of the crabs sidle away. Fucking bastard! He shouted. Bastard place worthless, said another of the crabs, scuttling over a rock. He started to run to it when he felt another pain, and his leg collapsed from under him. He lashed out at the crab that cut him with his sword, but he only managed to tap it with the flat of the blade. He heard others moving around him. How many of them were there? They all began chittering, repeating his words in idiot chorus. He felt more pains. He tried to flail around, but it was getting hard to move. Were they poisonous? What were they doing to him? He saw one sidle up to his arm. He tried to move it out of the way, but its spike-like claw reached out, and he saw the glittering blade on its underside as it sliced into his elbow, cutting the tendon. It spat a thick, viscous fluid over the wound, sealing it instantly. He couldn't move the arm any further. He began to scream as others swarmed over him, cutting, spitting, and rendering him immobile. One cut the tendons of his jaw, and his jaw slackened. He couldn't move except to arch his back. They started cutting off bits from his extremities. He felt his fingers and toes get cut off, and then one began to pluck at the soft flesh of his face. The last thing he saw was a pair of sharp claws reaching down to his face. It went on for some time, until he heard an odd, guttural voice. He heard the crab scuttle away, and then felt a final sting in his arm. He felt himself being lifted and carried as he drifted off to sleep. When he woke up, he felt stiff, and his head hurt. He rubbed his eyes as he sat up. Then he stared at his fingers and the rest of his body. He was whole. Was he in Abert's land now? Was he about to be judged? He looked around and saw that he was in a white room, lying on a padded platform. It looked like the remains of some of the Saitus he'd seen, though much better kept up. Something felt odd with his hands. He looked down at them and blinked several times. He counted. He counted again. He balled his fists and then opened them again. It was no use. No matter what he did, he still found he had five fingers and two thumbs on each hand. The door opened. 
I see you're awake, sir. Pleased to meet you. The beller looked up and nearly fell off the platform as a monster entered the room. There was no other word for it. It was a man, roughly. It had two arms, two legs, and a head in the right places. But the head was oddly formed, as though someone had grafted on the crowns of other heads on top of it, making it much bigger than any normal man's head. He had four eyes with odd-shaped pupils under his bulbous forehead. A mechanical construct on a headband swiveled a lens over one eye, which blinked monstrously under the magnification. The skin was paler than any man the Beller had seen, almost white and pinkish, with light brown hair. A mustache with an unnatural curve seemed to form a second curly Q smile under his nose. His arms branched at the elbows, giving him four large hands, with long fingers with too many joints. I'm sorry if my appearance is alarming to you. I was working, and I didn't expect company. You're the Everman, the Beller said, frightened in spite of himself. The monster nodded. Everett Man, actually. Dr. Everett Man. The finest and the last surgeon this world has seen. And you are... the Beller. You... talk in your sleep, you know. And scream. And beg a little. I... Rescued you from my pets, dear little 098s. They can be difficult with strangers, I must confess. But no harm done, yes? And I even gave you a few improvements. I make people better, you know. Improvements? The extra fingers? Yes. And if you... tense your fingers... just... a little... the Everman said, smiling beatifically. Confused, the Beller did as the Everman suggested. As his fingers tensed, little glistening hooks sprouted from the tips of his fingers. He bit back a curse... They have a strong soporific. Useful if you encounter a dingo or other dangerous wildlife. The Everman turned. But let's have some tea, yes? Proper and civilized. The Beller followed him down the hallway, glancing around as he did trying to get his bearings in the strange building. There were many twists and turns and many closed doors. He heard voices behind some of them, but none in any language he understood. Behind some, he swore he could hear moaning or weeping. Finally, they came to a large, spacious room, bare but for a small table in the middle of it. There were two chairs. The Everman gestured to one. After the beller sat down, another door opened and a... thing walked in. It was human-like, but not human. It had four legs, splayed out like an insect's, and it had arms that bent too many times. Its face was perfectly formed, and all the more disturbing for its apparent normality. It carried a silver tray. It approached the table and lifted the lid of the tray revealing a ceramic pot with flowers painted on the side, two cups, and a bowl. The Everman took the pot and the cups, and then the bowl, placing them on the table. He poured the steaming tea into both cups. He looked up at the beller and began to ask, Would you like... Wait. No, I suppose you... 
wouldn't know about sugar in your tea. Well, it's like... Honey. I'll add some for you. How's that? He took small white cubes from the bowl and placed one in each cup. The beller sipped his politely and found it tasted good. Sweeter than he was used to, but good. Thank you. It's very good. He wanted to remain on the Everman's good side. The Everman beamed. Thank you. The refined sugar is rather clever, I think. I developed a grub that exudes it as a waste product. It took all of the Beller's self-control to smile and swallow rather than spitting out his tea. So, when you found me, did you by any chance find some papers? Ah, yes. I wanted to discuss that with you. They are most interesting. The Everman steepled both sets of hands. Where did you find them? In a land far to the north, across half the world. They were in a situ in a vast desert. Ah, the Gobi outpost. That's interesting. Very interesting. I did not realize that 120 was still active. We'll speak of that later. This list will help me find many things that were lost. Like the location of the home Saitu? The home... The Everman looked at him strangely for a moment, and then realization dawned in his strange eyes. Ah, you mean Site 23. Yes, it's in there. Though... I could have told you where that was. You could? The Beller had been so focused on the papers, it hadn't occurred to him that the Everman wouldn't need them. No, he'd come from there too, hadn't he? Of course. It's to the west of us, and a little north. I remember it well, though. I try not to visit there often. It's a dangerous place now. 184's effects are difficult to predict, especially after all this time. But think of the secrets that it must hold. Why, it's the birthplace of humanity, the holding place of so many wonders, and the grave of Starel himself. The Everman stiffened. His eyes narrowed. An eerie effect with all four staring down at the Beller. Strelnikov, the monster said. Dmitri Arkadeyevich. What? the Beller said, confused. Strelnikov. Dmitri Arkadeyevich. That is how he introduced himself to me. When we met, it is how I have always referred to him. It is how you shall refer to him. I... Yes, all right. Strelnikov Dmitri Arkadeyevich. No problem. Close enough. And yes, he is in there. With 682. Grave... Perhaps a fitting tomb. He was the best of us, you know. We did so well when he was with us. What happened? The Beller asked, sensing the Everman wanted an audience. Yorick. It was all his fault. The Beller had a moment of panic thinking to his ring, but realized that it was gone with the finger that had worn it. He... hurt you? He turned them all against me. 
all my friends. Without Strelnikov, Dmitry Arkadyevich, there was no one to defend me. And after all I did... He slammed two hands onto the table with enough force to crack the wood and tip over the pot in the cups. I was the one who solved the D-Class problem. I was the one who suggested we alter their reproductive DNA. Rights may have done the work, but it was my idea. I was the doctor. I kept us all in health. I cured the diseases. I fixed the injuries. Or did they remember that? No. They didn't care. They just wanted to stop my work. They said it was wrong, but I know the truth. They were jealous that I could see farther than my hands grasped the fire. Yorick. He hated me ever since the Raylan incident. He should have been grateful. I was his friend. I helped him. I only ever wanted to make him better. But did he care? He turned everyone against me. Cast out. No friends. No lab. Nothing but my surgeon crabs to care for me. And all I ever wanted was to help people. Well, I'll show them. I'll show everyone. I'll make them better. They'll see. And they'll thank me for it. No one will ever dare throw me out again. The Everman's eyes were wide and mad, and veins rose from his neck. Slowly, his eyes focused again on the beller. You. You won't. Leave me, will you? You're my... friend. Yes? Uh, yes. Of course. The beller said, terrified. The Everman was mad, clearly. If he hadn't been to start with, the years alone must have done it. Good. Good. I knew you were... different. As soon as I saw you, you won't abandon me. I'll... I'll help you. I'll make you better. That's what I'll do. Oh, that's all right. I think I'm good enough for now. No, I insist. He gestured to his servant, which grasped the beller with a strong, vice-like grip. I understand your reluctance, but you'll see. It's for your own good. I'm your doctor, after all. He stood and walked for one of the doors. The servant followed, forcing Bella along. Dr. Mann pulled out a small metal object and placed it into a slot on the door, then turned it. The door opened, and they entered. The Beller found himself standing in a vast, brightly lit room containing hundreds of different relics. My collection. Various SCPs. Ah, wonders, I think you call them. Many the Foundation never even knew. These are just the ones that can be stored together, you understand. Others would be more problematic. He continued walking down the aisles, past shelves, boxes, and crates. A broad-brimmed hat rested next to a silt-encrusted cup. A picture of a girl waved at him from a picture frame sitting by a ruby medallion. A stone cube twice as tall as a man cracked in two. He hardly formed more than an impression of any of them as he was dragged past. They finally came up to a platform, like the one upon which he had woken up. Three arms of metal and plastic rose above it. Two, one, two. I was lucky to acquire it. The Foundation never understood it properly. They couldn't control it. The improvements were random, haphazard. I have better understanding. It will help you, my friend. Help you to see as I do. The beller didn't know if he meant eyes or beliefs, and he didn't want to find out. 
He twisted as much as he could and delivered a swift kick right between the servant's four legs. It howled and released him. Even as the Everman turned, the beller grabbed a box off a shelf. No, you fool! The Everman shouted as the beller threw the box's contents at him. He tried to grab a tiny red object as it bounced away, but it evaded him. The beller turned and ran. He heard crashes behind him and saw the servant running after. It screamed at him, a high-pitched keening that grated at the beller's ears. Then something struck the creature, and it stumbled. The beller thought he saw a tiny red streak, and then a shelf collapsed. He cursed and added even more speed, looking for shelter. Traitor! Quisling! The Everman's voice echoed through the room. Yorick! The beller saw an odd-wheeled box. He jumped inside of it, on the off chance it might be enchanted to move. He looked around for some sort of control mechanism. There were several levers and a large wheel. He tried them, but got no noticeable response, as more objects broke and shattered around him. Something punched through the roof before shattering the front window. The servant, one leg trailing behind it, jumped on the front of the vehicle and reached through the broken window at the beller. In desperation, he clawed at it, raking at the creature with the hooks the Everman had planted in his fingers. It hissed and drew its arm back, then tensed as if to jump. Finally, the beller noticed a small metal object, like the one the Everman used to open the door. He grabbed it, praying to Geyer and Semeril to send him somewhere safe as he twisted it forward. There was a sudden and complete lack of sensation. For the second time that day, he wondered if he were dead, about to face Albert's justice. Then, suddenly, he found himself falling. He landed on a sandy dune with a force that had knocked the wind from him. In the distance, a building half buried by the sand stood, and nothing but dunes for miles. He stared, and then laughed, until tears streaked down his face. It was the Saitu where he'd found the papers, and the whole quest had begun. In the second tale, The Seeker, a man named Sender of Noma prays at a statue of old Aggie before departing on a journey out into the desert. The man was being sent on this journey because of a small stone that had fallen to him, with an arrow carved into it pointing out towards the desert. Sender knows he heads towards his death, but he goes regardless. He eventually comes upon the ruins of the first homes, now abandoned, and rests. He knows the ghosts of the dead are always close in the desert, but he's tired, and night had been upon him for hours. He's also lonely, as he had slept beside his wife for 38 years, but now he felt naked and cold without her warmth. He closes his eyes, trying not to listen to the voices in his head, when another voice speaks, stating that he is old, and asks why he walks this desert. He quickly opens his eyes and sees a butterfly resting on the edge of the wall. He immediately goes to his hands and knees, bowing down, calling the voice Lord, and stating that they honor him. The voice didn't respond and Sender soon realized that he hadn't answered the question. He says that he is the new seeker, as the lot fell to him, and being of a great many daughters, he was sent in despite his age. The voice remains silent, but when Sender raises his head, he sees that the butterfly has begun flying through the air, so he quickly grabs his things and hurries after it. Eventually, after cresting a large hill, the butterfly seems to flick away into nothing. Sender didn't notice, however, as he was transfixed by the sight in front of him. Before him stretched a ruin unlike any he had seen before, and Sender had been a traveler in his youth. This ruin stretched for ages, for miles, or maybe further. It was made of metal and stone, and parts of it hurt to look at. He gave a prayer of thanks and dropped to the ground, his eyes closed. He had found it, 
even though hundreds of seekers before him had been lost to the desert. He had found the home Saitu, the city of the gods. He gave thanks to the Great Ones, to Agi, Drakin, and Starel, rejoicing that he had been blessed. And had he taken his blessing and run back home, he would have lived out the rest of his days as a saint and priest. But he did not. Instead, he approached the ruins, stepping over the sharp stones as he winced in pain. He reaches the exterior wall and climbs it, dropping into the cracked courtyard as he feels a sense of ease wash over him. The gods had allowed him entry, so he was surely blessed, to the point of being the next prophet, perhaps. He walked through the large open doors nearby, smiling, not even noticing the deep cuts in the floor or the lingering smell of sulfur. He entered the building and began exploring its endlessly twisting rooms, marking off doors with a stone. He found the works of the gods littered and skewed about the room, laying broken and destroyed. He sighed, realizing that the true treasures would be far deeper in the city. As he turned to leave, he noticed that his rock was missing, the one that led him here. As he started to look for it, he heard a roar, unlike any he had ever heard. A sound worse than those the demons made when they were butchered, and it was quite close. He ran, although the doors were gone, gone to wherever the ancients send such things as displease them, so Sender instead ran for a different path, hoping that somehow he would be given exit, that the gods would forgive him, even though he knew that they would not. He ran deeper and deeper, hearing the walls turning and crashing behind him, breaking into nothing as he heard the thing's voice calling out his name. The home Saitu was huge, infinitely long, and full of twists and turns. He was given short moments of joy when he thought he'd escaped, followed by deep moments of fear and sorrow as he realized he did not. He ran and ran until finally he fell, turning and looking at the beast. Its great maw opened and split into four parts, its terrible teeth easily pushing into his skin and through it. He screamed and screamed, but the gods wouldn't hear him. There he died, learning too late that the blessing of one god is the curse of another. An old man finishes telling this story to a group of children, laughing loudly and coughing as they flee in terror. One child remained, however, and asks, what was it? that Sender found. The old man turns to the child and says that he found just what he thought he found, the home Saitu, the city of the gods, and Starel's tomb. The boy shifted on his feet, and then asked if Sender was blessed. The old man smiles and laughs and says, of course not, he was cursed, as there are some secrets no one should have to discover. The boy is confused, however, as finding the home Saitu is certainly a blessing. The old man's eyes narrow, and he asks the boy his name. The boy responds that you should never tell your name to one who hides his, causing the old man to laugh again, remarking that the boy must be a follower of York. He introduces himself as Benedum, and the boy says that his friends call him Roan. Benedum says that he will tell him a tale of York, and asks if he's ever heard the story of the ape god Abert and the waters of life. The boy follows after him quickly, hanging onto every word. As we later learn in another tale, the boy known as Roan would eventually become known as the Beller. In another tale, SCP-1000, a shaman is instructing a shaman in training in how to record information about anomalies. The trainee begins talking about where it lives, but the shaman smacks his knuckles with a stick, stating that you always begin with how to stop it, how to keep it held. What it is can wait until after. 
the trainee begins again, saying that the people must always be ready, keeping their eyes to the south to watch for the Everman. They must keep their eyes to the east to watch for the city people who pick among the ruins for toys they cannot understand. They must keep their eyes to the seas, for things that come across the waters are a deadly threat. They must keep their eyes inward, for the greatest threat comes from men who know. No man may enter the antechamber, but that he comes to light the fires once more, or else that he is a shaman going for a vision quest. He will enter with one other, and neither may leave except with the other. When they leave... They close the doors shut tight behind them. At all times there will be five guardians at the door, chosen from the people and trained in war. They will keep their spears sharp. When one sleeps, another comes to replace him. Their dogs will sleep at their feet, ready to challenge any who comes from outside or within. With the containment protocols described, the trainee now moves on to explaining what the object is. He refers to it as an SP, called a wonder by the ignorant, and says that it holds the number of a thousand thousands. It is of the kind called Qatar, the all-consuming. There are two parts of the SP. The first they call Aleph, which is a dream of butterflies, they are held off by the burning of certain herbs, and it is therefore that they keep the fires lit, remaining watchful should they go out. The dream of butterflies gives a man visions, strange scenes of times far past. He has seen these visions once, seen men and women dressed strangely in long white coats, speaking in a language he did not recognize. The second part of the espy, the bait, is the most dangerous part, though it seems to be nothing but an old man. In other lands he is called a god, or a devil, but they know he is just a man who has lived very long, and that is what gives him power. He was one of the first to leave the home Saitu, and they do not know how he came to live so long, perhaps through the efforts of the Everman, or perhaps from another espy hidden deep in chambers they have not seen. Either way, he lives, and he knows the secrets from the time before. His knowledge is a poison that must be kept from the world, and that is why they keep him held, as their ancestors did before them. The shaman tells him that he has done well so far, admirably echoing the words of others, but a shaman cannot simply speak like a parrot. He has been inside, and seen the bait, so he should add to their knowledge. The trainee says that the old man asked him to help him escape, promising him great weapons and riches beyond his dreams. The trainee refused, for they know him to be a liar. The old man said that he was imprisoned unjustly, cursing him, and then cursing Geyer above and Caleph below for holding him there. The trainee fled, admitting to the shaman that he is not a brave man. The shaman tells him that he did nothing wrong, as many who have gone in have not returned. The dream of butterflies and the old one are strong, and they know that they wish to get past them. They serve, contain, and protect. The trainee responds that they protect until the gods return. Finally, in another tale, Learning, two men are traveling towards the city of Caliphite, where the rich are said to buy relics for ten times what they're worth. One is riding a horse, and the other a camel, with three days of travel before reaching the city. Before reaching the last village before the city, however, they come across two dead men lying in the dirt. Both of their packs appear to have been rifled through, and the ground around them was stained black with dried blood. Whoever killed them had taken their water, and maybe their horses, but had left everything else behind. They emptied out a pack onto the ground, finding it filled with relics. 
they found a plain set of clothes, a corroded metal coffee mug with ITT Industries written on it in the old language, a polished black pipe, and a green book. There was also a bag of tobacco tucked inside the coffee mug, although since neither man realized its purpose, this was discarded. One of the men, Carrick, asked what a caliphite man would give for a relic of the old world. The second man, Goreth, finished the joke by replying, food, water, his wealth, and daughter. They both laughed and hugged each other in celebration of their find. Carrick examined the pipe, while Goreth opened the book, finding only a single line written in it. He sounds the words out, to which Carrick asks what it means, as he cannot read at all. Goreth, however, frowns and says that he doesn't know, but they should begin riding for the village. The two started off again at a brisk pace, as they had no food left, and Carrick hoped to find something to eat before they slept. They rode in silence, both contemplating different things, with Carrick contemplating his dinner and Goreth contemplating the book. He could have flipped it open to any page, and yet he flipped to the only one with words on it. Before he could think any further on the matter, however, he fell from his horse, dying instantly. Carrick was irritated briefly, but then laughed a moment later, remembering that he was planning to kill Goreth anyways to avoid splitting profits. This was just as well for him, as now his only hindrance was tying Goreth's horse to his own camel. He did not realize that had Goreth lived for another day and night, he would have become richer than either of them could have hoped. Carrick later arrived at the small village, where he didn't want to sell his wares, as everyone here was poor and no one had much need for relics. He needed food, however, or rather, he wanted food, and figured that buying something to eat here was more prudent than in Caliphite, at least until he made his fortune. He decided to sell one relic from the pack they had found, accepting nothing less than what he could use to buy a chicken here, and then he would eat, sleep, ride, and get rich. He laid out a blanket and displayed the relics, calling out to passerbys to come peruse his wares, the very stuff of legends. As he was showing off the black pipe to an elder, claiming that it was used for feeding infants by filling one end with goat's milk, a young girl, eight years at most, wandered over. The elder walked away, shaking his head, and Carrick scowled as he turned to the girl. He asked her what she needed, his voice seeping with sarcasm and acid, causing her to cringe back. She tells him that her mother told her to fetch them a chicken for dinner, and showed off the coin she had been given. Carrick brightened at this, thanking York for the fool in front of him, and told her that her mother surely wouldn't mind it if she browsed for a moment. He bid her to look at the wonders before her and tell him what catches her pretty eye. The girl immediately went for the book, which Carrick thought to be odd, but he remarked on it being a wizard's tome. The girl opened the book and gasped, remarking that her grandmother showed her these letters before she died, so she knows the sounds they make. Carrick thought this was a useless skill, but told her that this was fate, as no doubt her grandmother wanted her to take this book. He tells her that this is worth much more than a tired old chicken, as this book is magic. The girl begins to dismay that she only has one little coin, but Carrick goes down to one knee in front of her, telling her that he cannot interfere with fate. She should take the book, and he'll only take the one coin for it, even though the wizard's tome is worth its weight in silver. He then instructs her to run home, for surely her family will shower her with praise for the magic she has brought into their lives. The girl threw her arms around Carrick in a tight embrace before running off, clutching the book to her chest. Carrick then only remarked on how stupid she is, before collecting his things and heading off towards the chicken coop. 
When the girl arrived home, however, her mother began shrieking in anger at what she had done, slapping her across the face and screaming that they cannot eat a book. She hurls the book out through the doorway and screams at the girl to sleep outside to see if the book keeps her alive. The young girl slipped outside, crying, finding the book and slamming it with her fist. She took the book around the back of the house as she continued to cry, eventually opening it again and finding the same words written there. The words now felt decidedly unmagical, and she cried herself to sleep. She awoke, however, in the most beautiful place she had ever seen, a wonderland with a vivid landscape of trees and valleys and mountains in the distance. Birds, colored like rainbows, flew right over her head, and she watched as amazing animals sprinted across the valley below. She looked up and saw more stars than ever before, despite it still seeming like daytime, with two suns in the distance. A voice calls out to her from behind her, and she spins to find a tall old man with a long white beard down to his chest. His hair was the same color, as were his eyebrows, and his voice was soft and deep, but friendly. His face was friendly too, with many wrinkles and creases on the sides of his upturned lips. Most amazing, however, was his cloak, a shimmering green which flowed with waves of shades from a deep emerald that looked almost obsidian to a light leafy olive and everything in between. The old man greets the girl, who stammers and asks if he's the wizard. The old man smiled at her and says that he supposes that he is, before asking who she is. She introduces herself as Aaliyah, which he remarks is a pretty name. He asks if she knows where she is, causing the girl to gaze about shyly. She had never seen the animals before, and had never seen a sight so beautiful. She asks if she's in heaven, and the old man laughs in a kind way, stating that she is not in heaven, as she is far too young to see the afterlife. That's for old men like him. No, instead, she is in the book that she found. He calls himself the bookkeeper, but she may call him whatever she likes, and in here... He supposes a wizard is about right. She says that the book had words in it, but even though her grandmother showed her the letters, she can't read very well. The bookkeeper then invites her to walk with him, as he hasn't had company in a very long time. The two begin walking through the marvelous forests and valleys, as the bookkeeper answered all of her questions. She remarks that the book was magic after all, and the bookkeeper says that when people visited him before, it was a very different time, when people had all they needed and knew all they could hope to know. Aaliyah correctly guesses that he's referring to the old world, and he says that he's gone a long time without any visitors, so he's very happy she's come here. He asks her if she'll come back again, to which she responds that of course she will, as this place is wonderful. His expression then turns somber, and he says that she has to promise him something, as he made a mistake in the old world, one that he will never let happen again. She has to promise him that she'll keep being happy in her world. She may visit as often as she likes, and he hopes that she does, but she has to remember her promise, and live in her world as much as she does in his. Aaliyah nods with energy and then asks him what the words in the book said, as she doesn't know the sounds. The old man replies that the words are, A hero is born, and asks how much she knows about the letters her grandmother showed her. She responds, not very much, as her grandmother only knew a little bit as well. The bookkeeper dropped his smile and looked puzzled, telling her that they should start there then and asks if she'll let him teach her how to read. If you haven't figured it out yet, the book discussed here is SCP-1230, which causes readers to dream of a vivid fantasy world 
controlled by the bookkeeper, who creates whatever fantasy scapes and adventures the reader wishes. The mistake that the bookkeeper is referring to is from a foundation researcher that refused to ever leave the fantasy, spending 200 years in there before dying in real life. The bookkeeper must have waited a very long time indeed before Aaliyah finally managed to enter the book. This will conclude my overview of the Bellerverse, a wonderfully unique and fantastical part of the SCP universe. Obviously, I only covered a few of the tales written in this canon, and hopefully more will be written in the future, but I hope that you'll take some time to read the others for yourself. While it's of course a post-apocalyptic setting, with people living in the forgotten ruins of modern civilization, it's also a rather optimistic setting, as life continues to go on despite all the odds. The Bellerverse may not have the foundation, but it more than makes up for it with heart. <laughs>